0: Here's some really interesting statistics. This one's from Paul Amato. There's the both studies are from him actually. And he, he's saying that it's actually um there's about a 50% chance of divorce within the lifetime of your marriage. Or sorry, 42 to 45% chance of divorce um within the lifetime of you being married, okay? So if you think about that, that's four out of that's four I burp every Sunday. I don't know. Someone <laughs> give me advice on that. That's like four and a half people out of ten. Um, that's a lot. I don't know. That's like, that's almost... And then he says it's close to 50% if you include permanent separations that don't end in divorce, meaning people are living um, apart from each other's homes and uh, just totally separate lives. 50% is a lot. I mean, one out of every two people who get married, when you get married, I mean, do you think about that when you're watching wedding videos, when you're seeing people put on a white dress? Like, I watch two wedding videos, and one of them aren't going to make it. You know, do you think about that? Because that's a, that's a pretty hollowing st- statistic. And then when we think about the reasons why people get a divorce, like, there are things that I, I kind of get, you know, and, and I would put in the forefront of maybe even good reasons uh, why you should leave, you know, if your physical body's in danger, if your kids are in danger, if they cheat on you. But here are some, re- but here are the top three reasons why people get a divorce and the second three out of, um they just kind of sent out 2,000 surveys, they collected it, and then they put it into their own categories, okay? The first one, first three reasons, lack of commitment, too much conflict and arguing, and then an extramarital affair. Again, the third one I kind of get, but I don't think We we are anticipating being divorced because we fought too many times. Like people don't go into marriage thinking that or that someone will lack commitment. Uh, Reasons four to six: getting married too young. It's in the same compatibility uh, category as incompatibility. Little or no um, helpful premarital preparation financial problems or economic hardships. Again, we don't think about fighting uh, over budget to a place of getting a divorce. We don't think about um, just incompatibility in general. And so divorce can be led to things that might might seem nominal and then become serious. But even as we think about the dysfunction of American marriages, again, 50% divorce or separation, 45% in divorce in a lifetime of someone getting married, I would suggest to you that the audience, the Jewish audience Jesus is speaking to had a more dysfunctional view of marriage, that there were actually more divorces in the first century than there are now. Um, And uh, we don't have... We don't have statistics to back that up, but when you look at the culture and the framework in which they think about marriage, it was a much more liberal or looser view of marriage. Um, let me go to a passage in Matthew chapter five verse 31. And again, we, when, whenever we think back in time, we're always thinking, oh, people were more conservative then, they had healthier marriages then, right? Isn't that how you conceptualize like biblical times um, when you open up your storybook Bible or even like 30 years ago, like, oh, everyone had such healthy marriages. But Jesus was speaking to uh, a community and a Jewish context in which marriages were, were wrecked very often and very easily. Verse 31 it has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except sexual immorality takes, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Um, I just want to say that this is an extremely difficult text to interpret. And there's people who land on a lot of different interpretations uh, me and Dallas Willard agree, so that's good. So I'm going to give you our perspective. Dallas Willard, uh, this guy who wrote lots of books, taught at USC. Um, anyways, so, so first we wanna, first I want to say is that if you just read it, it sounds like the woman can be victimized twice, right? And, and that Jesus is propagating that. That first her husband could just kind of drop her and then she gets a divorce and then she can never remarry so it's possible on first reading that me and Nina are married and then I go after someone else and and then I divorce her and she could never remarry again and that if she remarried whoever married her would also be an adulterer right do you see that at the last line anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery I would say that's a second victimization because the first victimization is divorcing a woman in that time period. And I would say that the majority, I'm talking like 98, 99% of divorces in, in Jesus' context is a man divorcing the wife. Women almost never divorced their husbands in the audience that he was speaking to because a woman had no way of supporting herself economically. So if a woman was to divorce her husband in that time, she was just basically going to be homeless, right? She had three options. A divorced woman could uh, go home and be with her family, but she would feel this great sense of shame that she didn't get her marriage to work. She could uh, prostitute herself, or she could get remarried, but the w- man wouldn't treat her in the same way because she was divorced. So that was her three options. So no, very virtually no woman in the historical context, would divorce a man. But during that time, a man could divorce a woman for any reason. And you have Jewish teachers, uh, if you want to look at Matthew chapter twelve, you have Jewish teachers or Matthew chapter nineteen, verse three, it says, Some Pharisees came to Jesus to test him, and they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? And every reason, and this was a popular belief at the time, even in the in, even in the most conservative Jewish circles, even among the Pharisees, they would they think that you could divorce a woman for any reason. And literally, there's writings from that time period of rabbis who say, "Hey, if your wife uh, burns your food, you could divorce her. If you look at another woman and think she's more attractive than your wife, you could divorce her. That's brutal." And when, again, you look at the ramifications of what it meant for the divorced woman, it was extremely cruel. But they justified it in saying, hey, if I just give her a certificate of divorce, it's okay because I'm not calling her an adulteress. That that was much worse. If a woman was caught in adultery with a man, uh, with another man, she could be stoned to death. And an adulterous woman was brought before Jesus and they wanted him to stone her, right? But he instead uh, forgave her and told her to sin no more. But, but a certificate of divorce is this, in their mind, was this like, okay, you didn't cheat on me, and I'm, I'm the one letting you go, and so you're going to be okay. Does that make sense? So in the mind of the Jewish rabbis and, and people, if you wanted to legally, ethically, morally um, leave your wife, you don't call her adulteress. That's wrong. She's going to pay severe penalties, but you can give her a certificate. And what Jesus is saying is that, first, that certificate is, is, is not enough. And second, first, he ups the uh, requirements of divorce, right? So all these people at the time are saying, um, you could divorce a, a woman for any, literally any reason and go and marry this other girl. Um, and Jesus addresses the heart issue of lust there, but then he also gives a very clear standard. Only if she cheats on you, only if she commits adultery, do you have any reason for divorcing her. Think about how far up he raises the bar from their current context. Burnt toast, another woman more attractive, cheats on you. And so in many ways, Jesus is fighting for the rights of these women, or the the more um, he 's raising the moral standard uh, for these men, saying that in my kingdom you don 't just drop your wife in my kingdom you don 't look for another woman to think uh, of your life with her rather than your wife in my kingdom you 're faithful to her and then he and then addressing the last verse here he speaks he gives the men a very serious and realistic repercussion of what divorce means. What he's saying is that when you divorce your wife, even though you didn't call her an adulterer, an adulteress, she will be treated like that um, for the rest of her life. She'll be treated like that when she leaves you and goes back to her family. She'll be treated like that when she, if she prostitutes herself. And she'll be treated like that even if she gets remarried that this other man will see her in a degraded way. And so I, I believe that the second passage isn't saying that a woman who's divorced, uh, a man can never marry a woman who's divorced. Again, there's a couple of different interpretations of this. I believe what Jesus is saying is telling the men who are just pushing their women to the side, their wives to the side and divorcing them, that you are still subjecting them to the life of an adulteress. You are making them a functional adulteress, even though you haven't called them an adulteress. Even though you're giving them this nice piece of paper that says, I divorced you, she's going to feel and live like an adulteress. And so Jesus, in the strongest of terms, is saying, in my kingdom, we are not to get a divorce for these arbitrary reasons. We are to value our wives. We are to have our eyes toward them. We are to love them. Um, I hope that's helpful. You know, I don't do this often, but any questions on this? It's a pretty difficult passage to pull apart, so I hope that my interpretation made sense. But do you guys have any questions on this? I know. Now, now we're in a classroom. I was, uh, Mitchell, I'm looking at you. Stop, stop slumping and avoiding eye contact. Um, it makes me love Jesus because he is a man who speaks against this oppressive culture. He takes a totally different perspective than all these other rabbis, and he elevates women in really profound ways here in ways that no one else has ever spoken up about, right? The men had the power, not only in finance and in, uh, and in politics, but also in the religious sector. And oftentimes, when you see one group of people have power, they, they twist things to oppress another. It, this whole interpretation of what adultery meant served the male perspective, And Jesus, being a male, says, I'm I'm giving voice to these women who have just been dropped for no reason, and I'm standing up for them, and I'm going back to what God intended marriage to be. I love how he platforms his power like this. All right, so we had a really depressive conversation and question, but now a happy video, Uh, a little intermittent break, so we're just going to go ahead and play that
1: so excited to marry you, and I'm ready to spend the rest of our lives together. I couldn't wish for a better bride and partner and friend. I'm excited and ready for anything life and God has in store.
0: When I think about what marriage is, at the end of the day, it's a commitment. It's the commitment you're making right now. But in the generation we live in, there's just so many categories for commitment. And those kind of commitments are really focused on us. It's about what makes us happy. It's about what we want. It's about, it's about me. And I think marriage can become just kind of this casual commitment where it's about your happiness and what you get out of it. But this isn't that kind of a commitment. It can become this exchange of I'll do this for you if you do that for me. I'll love you better if you serve me. And actually, there's this couple who went up to a pastor and made that complaint. The, the man said, I'll love you and serve you if you submit to me. And the woman says, I'll submit to you if you love me more. And what the pastor did was he looked at the man and he says, you need to be more like Jesus. Because when his bride spat on him and sinned against him and nailed him to the cross, he loved her. And that's what a covenant is. It's not about you, and it's not about the exchange or the contract. A covenant is saying, I love you, the other person, so much that I will die first, I will sacrifice first, I will forgive first. And marriage is a death. It's a daily death to your pride, to your preferences, to you saying sorry first. But if you don't die, your marriage will die. But if you do die, your marriage will find this resurrected life. Because of your vows you've made before God, your friends, and family, by the authority vested in me by God and His church, I pronounce you husband and wife. Matthew, you may kiss the bride. check check one two i'm gonna invite the changs and also uh the whitmore's up and we're gonna just do a little panel discussion uh i didn't want to write i didn't want to write the other half of my sermon so i'm just gonna ask them questions <laughs> and make them make them uh answer for me we actually also invited um rudy and lydia but um lydia got sick and so we w- we weren't able to have them today so please pray that she feels better soon um w- Yeah, and so here's some of the questions I wrote up um, that I think could be relevant to, when we think about divorce, you know, it's not about not getting a divorce. It's about having a marriage that's fulfilling. And it's about, if you're single, preparing your heart and making decisions now that will transfer into your marriage, okay? And so that's where the questions will be focused. That's where we're kind of turning the corner here. How... Do we um have a marriage that that will prevent divorce because we love being married? We love our wife and our husband we love being in a family. How do we as a single person um, go towards that and what would what does that look like um so that we're not practicing divorce as we're as we're single um, so anyways, Jonathan and Kristen they're part of our leadership team and uh, they've been married twelve years and just I, there's actually quite a few couples in this room that I look up to. I just ended up choosing these two, but I'm just so thankful. Me and Nina live in a community of really great families that we get to be a part of. But here's here's two of them. So Jonathan and Kristen, they've been married for 12 years, and then Chrissy and Ken. I don't know how long you guys been married. For. 32 years. That's three years. I was three years old when you got married. Makes you feel good. All right, so um, you guys can pass around the mic, but. What's the one advice you would give for a long and fulfilling marriage when you think about um, your years together?
1: Okay, I, we did talk about this last night. We went good, on a date good. to walk through these questions, so I have two answers, and here's one of them. Um, yeah, I mean, long and fulfilling, I, I actually think the chance could speak to this a little bit more <laughs> than our 12 years, but... Um, I think about um, the reasons for divorce often that I hear, even um, among friends we've seen and acquaintances and stories, is we grew apart, um, and that was one of the reasons up there, right? Like married too young or incompatible or or not in love anymore, and it just makes me think about um, how much you do change um, just as you grow older, whether you're married or not, and I don't know who this quote came from originally, but Tim Keller requoted it saying that there was a man who had talked about his marriage of many decades and said, over the years, my wife has been married to many men and all of them have been me. <laughs> and I think that's so true. Even in 12 years, um, Jonathan is a, is a way different person than I married and I am a way different person too. And I think the key to growing closer and not growing apart in that is that you may have heard like the triangle analogy with God at the point and two people following him, that they are like pulled closer together. And so I think um, as I become more like Christ and as Jonathan becomes more like Christ, if we're pursuing God, um, that we're becoming more like him, not necessarily more like each other, but Mm -hmm. we're becoming more like him and more like ourselves. So we're going to remain different people, but more compatible because of that. I think the flip side of that, another side, is that um, choosing to make Jonathan the biggest influencer in my life outside of Christ. Like I think, as we have different jobs and friends, and becoming a mom, and all of the messages I get that way, like there are so many people I could choose to influence the way I want to live my life. But choosing over and over again that I want Jonathan to be the one that shapes me more than any other human helps that compatibility. I think shift over time, too.
2: Mm, That's really good, Kristen. Yeah, that's... (laughs) I I absolutely, totally, 100% agree. And I I think um, the way I look at it's very similar, but I think basically is loving God. Um, If we date God, I feel like if I date God and my relationship with him continually is fresh, um, I get God's perspective more and I am filled out me more love uh that I can love others with, so date God and date my husband
3: <laughs> I think the other thing that comes to mind when we talk about the triangle there's there's another kind of triangle, and that is um that has to do with our feelings. You, you hear a lot of stories about people falling out of love and the feelings gone, but I think the feelings followed two more important things one is um, how God would want me to view Chrissy and how precious um, that is and who she is in God's eyes and then so my perception of who who she is and my behavior to that perception am I treating her like a precious jewel Mm. if those two lead I will guarantee you your feelings will follow uh, so it's, it's, it, that's it. For the long haul, that's important because there will be periods of time when you're j- you just not feeling it. Yeah.
0: What brought you through the toughest season of your marriage and what made you choose marriage over divorce in those times?
4: <laughs>
3: Since I'm holding the mic. Um, <laughs> Okay, so toughest season I, I, I think the, the key is uh, during those rough seasons when all kinds of doubts start creeping into one's head um, about the marriage it's important again uh, to realize that you know this is all about that triangle of, of God in the center and I ask myself uh, do I trust God that That Chrissy is the one that he um, has designed for me, and and that he was the the he is the center of our marriage, and that he's uh, and ultimately that he knows what's best for us uh, individually and together. Um, So it really comes down to that uh, because all else can get so blurry. uh, But the main thing is, you know, God's asked asks me, do you trust me? You know, you don't know how this is all going to resolve itself, but I've got this, do you trust me? And time after time after time, the answer is like, yeah, that was really stupid.
4: You want another answer to that one? <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think of, um, again, we've got 12 years of experience, but I think of uh, probably one of the toughest seasons for us um, was uh, trying to have a second kid. So we had a couple miscarriages, We um, one that was pretty kind of brutal, and then uh, we went through an adoption process that lasted five years. Um, and so I think like in that, the waiting, um, and the heartache and, uh, the, the circumstances just continued to, um, to press on us, um, and kind of squeeze out our impurities, I think. Um, and I, I so I think that's the benefit actually of having those kind of trials in marriage. But I, I agree with Ken. I think like ultimately it was like. Do we trust that God is the one that's leading us? Do we trust that He's the one that is um, giving us a desire to pursue a kid? And um, and I think uh, um, that in that we, uh, yeah, I think we we just were were able to uh, lean on each other instead of lean away from each other. So I think there's there is. A, a benefit in trusting that point that the Lord is because it causes us to lean in um, towards each other um, where the temptation is to, to lean out and to blame um, the other person um, in those types of situations.
0: All right. I'm gonna push, thank you guys. I'm going to push uh, question three and four together. What can a single person do to cultivate um, or cultivate that would contribute to their future marriage and how, uh, sorry, number five, what's an underrated attribute that we should look for when dating that makes a significant difference in marriage? Does that make sense? No, underrated.
2: Underrated. not the underrated. The, the, uh, the cultivate, what to cultivate. I, I think that it helps a lot all along is to really have a sense of purpose for my life. I, I need that overarching something to get me through the day-to-day, because uh, day-to-day there's a lot of challenges. Um, what's my life about? And is it about me or is it about God? And in, and I think it really helped me early on to have dedicated my life to live it for God. And I wanted to serve him. I wanted to go into full-time ministry. So having that uh, mentality, everything change, shift, how I manage money, whether I was going to own loans, um, how I live, whether I'm going to live freely without hindrance, um, and uh, issues I know I have, insecurities I know I have, deal with it head on, Um, just know that my life is lived for him and it's about God, it's not about me. Um, That has really helped me through some of the roughest times.
3: Maybe I'll tackle the the, the second question. Uh, underrated, underrated attribute. Um, I think of uh, faith and, f- and faithfulness. Uh, so faithfulness, loyalty, uh, is is not usually on t- someone's top of the list. But you know, looking looking at Chrissy, and how um, you know she treated her parents, her grandparents how she had friends for many, many, many years, and how even though they've had disagreements and whatever, she's always continued to pursue them and to pray for them and to shepherd them and to to have a pastor's heart for the long haul. Um, I've come to appreciate that even more and more, that just loyalty, faithfulness uh, aspect, uh, which is so important for the long haul. Um, and then faith. Um, I, you know, her, her trust and faith in God is so much stronger than her faith and trust in me, which is right on, because uh, I will fail a thousand times. Um, but the fact that her faith is strong, you know, f- f- that um, is something that will always anchor her and therefore anchor us. So faith and faithfulness.
0: Um, oh, I, I think I'll, I'll add one thing to that. Um, you know, I, I, I'm sure you have experience if you're married. They basically become like another voice in your head. Like, I know what Nina's thinking, bef- even if she doesn't talk to me about it. I really hope you marry someone that you respect their thoughts, you want their wisdom, because if they have foolish thoughts and they're, and they're thinking wrongly, you're going to start thinking wrongly too, because how they think is going to become how, how you think. Um, all right, so two more questions. How do you think premarital sex and cohabitation affects marriage later if you think it does? And how can we date in a way that would benefit our future marriage?
1: Um, yeah, I think it does um, affect marriage. and um, But I think that the messages that are sent often about reasons to wait could not really hit the bullseye of what truly affects marriage. I remember before I was really walking with God, I understood why it would make sense to save yourself and intimacy for marriage. Like you only want to do that very special thing with one special person. But I had kind of made this commitment. I'm just going to wait until it's the person I'm going to marry. Um, Why not like engagement? You know, that. I already know that I'm going to marry them, so I think that that it's more it's more about who got your character and really learning to submit and honor God's request because He knows best. Um, I fully 100% remember. I hope this is okay. When Jonathan and I were dating and engaged, and um, and him being like, I just don't understand why. God wouldn't want us to have sex, you know, like, now and not wait. Um, and... Right. Because <laughs> it's like, we know we're going to get married, you know, like, what? Why are we waiting? And so th- there's going to be times when it's just, like, really actually does not make sense. What does that date really mean and that ceremony really mean? So I think that choosing to... That, like, death to self that Wilson was talking in the sermon, like, choosing... Like the spirit to lead through self-control, like that fruit of the spirit choosing to die to your selfish desires um, is what's really going to produce the character in you that's going to carry into marriage when other things come along that maybe, you know, God says this isn't right, but why would he say that? Like everything feels right and I want to, and that would feel better and that would be easier. You know, if you give into those sort of temptations and messages before you're married, it's like choosing to flex that muscle of impulse and reaction when you are married too. And so I think um, even though Jonathan and I didn't have sex before we were married, the we still struggled with purity. And so I think that there were still things about that in marriage of like choosing to flex that muscle of self-control that maybe had atrophied a little bit when we hadn't been making those constant decisions of self-control. And so I think choosing to fight um, to fight hard um, when you're dating and engaged just produces this, like, spirit of resilience and trust and looking toward the Lord when it m- doesn't make sense to you is is helpful. Yeah.
3: I can. But...
2: <laughs> it's a couple <laughs> things. I, I feel like... Um, <laughs> There's this over um on one hand is the discipline, right? So be the tough Christian, be the perfect Christian. On the other hand is a lot of people are saying it's just another way that religion controls you and um manipulate you and ultimately it's just holding back something good from you. You know, everyone's doing it, everyone's enjoying it. And then and then when you don't trust God, that avalanches into all kinds of things. It's like, do you really trust God? And then the other thing is a lot of people, I, I see that when they rough it out like that, then they then still not trusting God, it seeps into other things. Then they do similar things but hide it, whether it's pornography or whatever. Um, so... It, it's not just one thing. Sometimes we just like, this is just one thing that needs to be solved. I'm going to do it or not do it. And that's it. But it's so much more than that. Do you really trust God? Um, do you understand God's grace and God's mercy? And so I just feel like it kind of all goes back to our own relationship with God. Um, and, and if. You've seen it. It's not only is God giving that as kind of a general rule to protect us, he's really looking out for our own our, our interests. Because um, I've seen a lot of negative consequences that have come of it, and um, that we can go ahead and disobey God and appropriate his, his mercy and his grace, but we still have to live with the consequences. And that could last a long time. So bottom line is, do I really trust God, and is what He says and what He suggests or commands um, really ultimately going to be good for me? Could I trust that?
0: All right, thank you. One more question: What is sweeter about your marriage, uh, the last ten to twenty years, than those first years? And I, I guess, like, just painting a picture of uh, for us, uh, we romanticize those engagement and that first year of marriage. I think there's something really sweet about being married over a lifetime, you know, or 12 years, (laughs) or five years for me. Um, What have you seen? What 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 does that feel like to to choose to be together through the hardest times? What what does that produce? That kind of commitment.
4: Um, I don't know if you guys want to listen to me anymore, since Kristen shared about my opinion before I got married. He came around. He came around. I'm a different man now. She said that too. Um, but uh, for sure, one thing I think that's been a benefit to us is um, we don't compare our marriage to other marriages nearly the way that we used to in our first few years. I think that's a, That happens on an individual level, too, right? But it, it definitely happens a lot in marriage. I think it, it's a thing that the enemy likes to use to um, divide marriages as well. Um, you've probably heard this quote from Teddy Roosevelt, that comparison is the thief of joy. Um, and I think that that's very true in marriage, that if um, I'm just spending my time, I think for us, especially, I mentioned our adoption journey and <clears throat> trying to have kids. I think um, in Orange County, for sure, there's a value when you get married of how many kids you're going to have, and how many kids do you have, and how many kids do you have, and the perfect family has three kids or four kids or whatever, you know. Um, and I think that was a trap for us for a little while. I think um, as we were going through the struggle of like. Infertility and um, adoption, and um, and so you know, we we I, I wouldn't say that we always had great moments with that, but I would say on this side, the benefit for us, something that's sweeter, is because we persevered through that, um, it kind of built up character as has been talked about in a way that now we're not we're not worried, like, we're just thankful for what God has provided, and I think just that's um, made a huge difference for us in enjoying each other, not worrying about um, the way other couples do things. Like, of course, we're going to learn from other couples still, but um, I think comparison has gone um, out the door quite a bit, which has been really sweet.
3: I can go on and on. Um, Yeah, so... 32 years, we we just recently went back to Boston to look, you know, a place where we first got engaged and we were married. Uh, So it's fresh in my mind uh, looking at the long haul, uh, how much uh, deeper our relationship has grown, and how much more I'm in love with Chrissy than ever before. Um, And how, um, um, I don't know, just I, I love watching her interact, watching her love on other people and just admiring the person that God has made her. Um, and I've come to fully realize that in a marriage relationship, it's like she has, the, she's the most powerful person on the face of the earth, you know, to, uh, to make me a better person before God. And she's also the most powerful person Person on the face of the earth to totally decimate me. And she's like, you know, giving, it's like Superman giving kryptonite, you know, to the other person, and say, here, I trust you with kryptonite and you can kill me at, on a whim. Um, and, and understanding that dynamic uh, is it's humbling um, that we can do that to each other. Uh, and it's, it's also awesome and amazing. Uh, that we can continue to uh, present each other before god uh, to to be in christ 's image it and it does take sacrifice, dying, emptying ourselves, all of that um, but but it's uh, it just reflects our relationship with God even more in terms of how he you know he loves us and died for us, sacrifice and that whole parallel. As, as we uh, grow older and older in our marriage, we appreciate even more and more that uh, relationship that of how God loves us. So I know I rambled a lot, but um, yeah, I, I think our marriage has gone through a lot, uh, ups and downs, and Kelsey knows all about it. <laughs> um, and but you know, I, I would say that um, it's gotten deeper and sweeter and more beautiful than ever as well. Um, and it's, um, yeah, I, I, um, I, I know that, on the other hand, it's, it's hard commitment, it's hard work, it's all of that. Um, but uh, on the other hand, there's, there's nothing
0: uh, nothing better. All right, thanks so much. Can we give them a hand? Yeah. We really appreciate all of you. I think one of the joys I have um, is bringing people up here who you see every Sunday, who are a part of our community, that you can know. You could go to their homes. Uh, You're welcome to go to either of their homes anytime. <laughs> and um, you know, they don't. Have, none of us have a perfect marriage. It's impossible, right? It's impossible to have a perfect marriage. But we have some. Uh, we have some marriages that have weathered hard things and have chosen to be together. And um, yeah, so. Uh, just thankful for this community, thankful for um, many of the couples at our church. The last thing I want to do um, is to, could you guys grab the chairs for me? We'll invite the worship team up. Thanks so much, Maurice and Chris. We appreciate you guys. Uh, the, the, the worship team will come up, and I want us to just pause and think about communion. It's hard to understand what a marriage commitment is um, outside of this biblical concept of covenant. And that's a little bit of what I shared about um, in the wedding, but Jesus makes a totally different kind of commitment to us than we've ever seen, right? Most commitments are about me, whether I get something out of it or about an exchange. But what God does is he says, I love you so much that no matter if you break this covenant with me, I will still keep it with you. Isn't that amazing? The first covenant God made with Abraham and his lineage they sacrificed animals, split them in half, and walked through the middle of it. God in the form of a, of a fire Abraham. and Abraham. And that was an ancient way to do commitments. It's saying that if either of us break our commitment, we will die. Uh, it's, it's the unbreakable vow from Harry Potter. And, um, and we, in the line of Abraham, have broken our commitment over and over again. And Jesus, uh, God says, I will pay the price for that. So when we make a vow, when we make that kind of a covenant in marriage, it's a reflection of God and us. It's saying, I love you so much that even if you fail me, I will sacrifice and forgive and continue forward because of you. Not because, because this covenant is not based around me. It's not based around our exchange. What, if I swift, you'll do the dishes. It's based around my love for you. And so as we take communion this morning, as we remember the, the promise Jesus makes to us, um, as we remember that he gave his life to forgive us and bring us back again and again, will we reflect that in our relationships first as a community with each other? That we could practice this in our community here in brother and sisterness, in saying, I forgive you, I extend grace to you, I, I'm gonna ask for your forgiveness, and in our marriages, um, that it would that that what Jesus does would reflect in the community He did it for. Let me pray for us, Father. Thank you so much um, for this community you're painting, where it's not a 50 percent chance of divorce and separation, but we we commit to each other the way you've committed to us. That we. Choose to sacrifice, forgive, and die to ourselves um, for the life of our marriage, for the life of this community, and so we do this as we remember you and as we receive your covenant. We we covenant to our families and to each other. Will we rise together?